This is M.I.P. With Masamela Mafuma. Mark Thompson. Get woke. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of discussion, obviously, uh, these days when it comes to mental health and mental health uh, issues. Uh, and... I think it's important to have this conversation and uh, have it especially in the in the right context, in um, the proper context. And joining us today on Make It Plain, he's got a brand new book out entitled Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment and Abusive guardianships. My guest is Rob Wipon. He's an investigative journalist who has garnered 17 award nominations for writing in science, law, and community issues. Rob, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you? I'm fine, thanks, and thank you for having me. Well, and it is a, it is a pleasure to have you. I, I, I like to start this way because this is a certain context even here in New York. The mayor has decreed that um, homeless people in New York should be gathered uh, and and institutionalized. What, what's your what's your take on that? It's important to understand that this is not actually new in the sense that for 500 years, our mental health system has often targeted people who are homeless calling them sick, calling them dangerous, calling them criminal, rounding them up. That's been embodied in the mental health system for a long time. These laws have been in place in New York for, for a long time as well, and they've been implemented in this way. So to that extent, the mayor is correct in the sense he's saying he's not saying something all that radical. However, he's saying, let's be even more aggressive. Let's be even more aggressive with this. And therein, it's always been a concern for me, and it's now an even bigger concern because that's the message he's sending out there. Somehow we're not rounding up enough people. Somehow we aren't grabbing enough people. And this is a major way in which mental health law is used. I do want to say, and it's very important for people to know, that this is not the only way mental health laws get used. This is just one of the target groups of, of these kinds of laws. Talk to us, if you would, about how this is is happening in, in other places as well, because it sounds like what you're saying, it's 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 more rampant now. People are being moved to um, either institutions or being put under uh, an unprecedented amount of, of mental health scrutiny, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And it's happening right across the country and not only in America. It's a phenomenon in Canada as well, and to some degree also in some European countries. Um, what we're really having, of course, is an economic crisis, and with that, a, an affordable housing crisis. And instead of governments acknowledging that and saying, hey, look, we need more affordable housing, maybe we have some uh, ways in which our economy is working that's really not meeting the needs of an ever-growing number of people, how can we address that? Instead of acknowledging those issues, they're trying to pathologize these people, blame it on them. Oh, they're mentally ill. That's why they're homeless. So we have to we have to round them up and institutionalize them. So that's part of what's going on. The other thing that a lot of people don't know is the numbers of beds are actually vastly larger than is commonly talked about. So we only often refer to the number of state hospital beds, and certainly those, those numbers have gone way down. But the numbers of beds in group homes, in assisted living facilities, and other, in other types of institutions that are small, but also very coercive, sometimes they're locked down facilities, essentially uh, mini jails, uh, those, those have increased dramatically over the last several decades. And so it's, we get the impression, though, that 
like you think about New York uh, and some healthcare people are already saying this, there aren't, there isn't enough space to institutionalize every homeless person in New York. Um, I think that's the first thing that comes to mind. But what you're actually saying to us is, um, while there may not be additional space, there are too many beds in use in a lot of these places anyway, right? Well, you know, a lot of people say, gee, should we be saying that uh, we have a shortage of police officers? Or should we be saying that we've got, you know, an increasing number of problems that that unfortunately some people are saying, oh, we need more police officers to address them instead of more more services and more affordability and things like that. It's similar in the mental health system. Do we really need more mental health services in this case, or do we need to address what are really kind of causing these sorts of problems? And what I'm saying too is, if we're going to start using a word like shortage for beds, we should get the numbers. We should look at the numbers. And often people do not provide numbers. How many people in New York City are actually, in fact, being detained each year now under mental health laws? How many? We don't actually have that number. I asked. I went to the state office of mental health services and said, okay, well, how many people are being detained currently um, in the hospitals, residential treatment centers, all the other places that they do get detained because they're not only detained in the major hospitals. Uh, they didn't know. They didn't know that number. So I don't know if New York City has its own little number that it's working with. But this is a phenomenon across the country. Many states, many counties don't even actually have numbers when they start saying, uh, we need more beds. Um, we need uh, we need to forcibly hospitalize more people. They're simply reacting to the fact that there is some clearly issue of of homelessness out there of which some percentage of those people are really struggling, you know, with different kinds of sort of mental or emotional difficulties, either before they landed on the street or because they're living on the street. And, you know, it's important to know, for example, that of course, just living on the street causes people to become depressed, causes them to become anxious. You know, a little bit of sleepness just pro you know, prompts half of the population to start having visual and auditory hallucinations. So even psychosis can, can essentially be caused by living on the street. So that's an issue we need to be addressing. Now, we, we kind of started this conversation dealing with homelessness, but we know that what you are writing about is not confined to homelessness. Um, is there uh, an, an epidemic of overdiagnosis and over-institutionalization in general? Yeah. So the best numbers we have, and many states unfortunately do not track the numbers well, don't share the numbers publicly, but the best study we have a couple of years ago out of UCLA found that the numbers across the United States in most places and overall in the 22 states where they found fairly reliable data, the numbers are going up, up, up and have been for a long time. So when I say up, I mean like doubling over the space of five to 10 years in a lot of jurisdictions. And they were already pretty high, much higher than people typically realize, higher than in European countries. So, yeah, so that's a problem. And, and who are those people? Certainly some of them are this group we've been talking about. But what I found in the research of my book is there's a much wider spectrum of people who are being affected by these laws. Schools are using them. Yeah, Tampa Bay Times did some terrific research showing that astronomically skyrocketing numbers of children as young as six that are being sent to psychiatric hospitals because they're acting up in class in some way that's causing people to be concerned about their well-being. Um, you know, and anywhere we can find numbers that the rates of children getting, getting um, incarcerated under these laws for short periods of time are really going up. And that's no other institutions use them as well. Um, you know, workplaces, there's a phenomenon there where we're seeing workplace conflicts often being resolved with somebody being pressured, coerced, or outright forced to take some sort of treatment program, sometimes even a, a psychiatric drug. Nursing homes use them to uh, antipsychotic use against, against people with dementia and the elderly to kind of make them docile or, or debilitated. 988 hotlines, you know, the hotlines are using them to when they feel that somebody might potentially be at risk in some way, they're getting these calls traced and people taken to psychiatric hospitals. I can go on and on and on. The entire book is essentially exploration of all the different places in our society where these kind of laws are being used for some sort of management or control of certain types of people. And I have to ask this, 
are there certain groups of people that are disproportionately affected? Uh, people of color, people of a certain income? Yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. And again, the data, it's really problematic that the system is not gathering data. Yeah, to be quite frank, our, our, just, our information about the criminal justice system is far better than, than our information about people who are under detention, under mental health laws. So that's an issue. But wherever we do get studies, usually at a smaller scale, specific counties, regions, maybe a state sometimes, but that's very rare at that level. It's usually more at a microcosmic level. We do see these same patterns. So basically, you look at any dominant prejudice in our society, poverty, race, gender, you'll see those same prejudices playing out in psychiatric care and particularly involuntary commitment, psychiatric detentions. It's even so bad that, you know, we saw a year or two ago, the American Psychiatric Association issued a grand apology to the entire nation about this, saying their historical and ongoing contribution to racism within the mental health system, apologizing for it, promising to try to rectify things, although clearly not having any sort of plan. And even 70% of their own psychiatrists said they'd seen racism in mental health care in their daily practice. That, that is. Now, you also deal with the administration of, of drugs, don't you? Um, are people also being over-prescribed? And is that is that is this something that ultimately benefits the pharmaceutical industry? Yeah, I mean, certainly you see this enormous industry with its tentacles all through this system. I just want to say, I don't think it's only that. There's a, a wider belief in our culture that somehow, you know, mental health treatments are good for people. And, you know, of course, if you're consenting and finding that it's helping you, great, right? But the, we're talking about people who are being forced and not just forced once where they go, oh, well, thank you. I'm glad you did that. They're often going, okay, I've decided I really don't want this. And they're still resisting and they're still being forced. And I think it's clear. We need to be clear what we're talking about. When we say forced treatment, it's not, hey, we really want you to take this. Oh, thanks. I feel better. That's not really forced treatment by how it's how it plays out in actual practice. What happens is somebody says, no, I don't want it. And then they say, well, now we're going to force you. And they have security guards. We're talking about restraints. We're talking about people being stripped naked and jabbed in their bodies with a with an injection that can keep them tranquilized for a month solid straight, a single injection. Uh, you know, th this is brutal and people complain about it. They, they're traumatized by it. I've talked with so many people who've literally never recovered. I've talked to people who've experienced childhood abuse or, or sexual assault and, and they say this was worse, you know, for them. And, and so, you know, like, this is something we need to be clear about when we're saying, oh, let's have more forced treatment. What we're really talking about is for a lot of people, it, it, this is a brutal, traumatizing experience. And it's repeated over and over and over because they're continuing to say, these drugs don't help me. These drugs' adverse effects are, are brutal. You know, it, it, you, you probably anticipated my next question when you talked about, you know, people embracing mental health. We, we do live in a moment, and I guess this is the thing we need to reconcile. We do live in a moment in culture where, you know, at, at one time, um, mental health treatment or therapy even um, was not something honorable. People didn't want to talk about it. People didn't even want to do it. You know, um, we kind of move into a place and there's a lot of promotion now, you know, get the help you need. Don't be in denial about it. Everybody needs help. We get all of that. Um, but it sounds like like what you're saying, even with that being the current discussion, um, we can't put people in positions uh, where it goes overboard. Um, so, you know, so how do we balance that? Because honestly, a lot, a more and more people now talk about mental health treatment as never before um, and embrace it more than ever before because there's been, you know, historical um, denial of it and, and people not wanting to do it. So how do we, how do we reconcile this new embrace, which, as you said, you know, in, in many respects is good, but also embrace it so that um, it doesn't cause us to ignore the types of egregious problems you're describing. Yeah, well, for, for, for sure, 
first thing we need to do is distinguish between consent and lack of consent. You know, it's like the difference between sex and sexual assault. One can be beautiful and one of the most wonderful things a person can experience in their lives. And another can be one of the worst and most traumatizing. We need to understand that the system is currently doing both of these things and they need to be talked about and dealt with in radically different ways. And right now we really kind of hide the fact that this system can be extremely threatening, extremely dangerous, extremely hurtful to a large group of people. And sometimes it turns on a dime. So in my book, I talk about a lot of people who went for voluntary help and ended up being locked up and forcibly treated, and that experience traumatizing them. And then in a more broader sense, I think as a society, we need to realize that mental health has come to mean anything and everything. Right? There's really nothing that doesn't somehow. And so it's kind of like talking about the economic health of the nation. You and I, of course, agree that the, the economy of America should be healthy. Why wouldn't we agree? That's a wonderful concept. But what the devil is in the details, right? What do you mean? What do I mean? Do we agree about? And so similarly, when mental health should not be medicalized in this way so automatically, we need to say mental health is about friendship. It's about, you know, finding fulfillment in your life. It's about all sorts of ways of finding opportunity to, to be recognized and valued in society and, and to yourself, these sorts of things. And, and that's not a medical issue, right? It's we need to make sure that when we start saying care for your mental health, that we're not implicitly also saying, and that means see a quote unquote mental health professional. That means seeing a medical professional because that's often where it goes. And I kind of show in my book where often you see this literally in the messaging that, and that's where the pharmaceutical company and those players are, are behind some of that too. So when we talk about those who are not giving their consent and put in some of these, um, further traumatizing situations are many of them put there because of jurisdictional regulations and laws or are we also talking about people um because i think you allude to you know even some who are elders um whose families may find them in these situations how how does one what is the most common way and under what auspices does one most commonly find oneself in a situation where they are, they've not consented and they want to get out of it? Yeah, there are really sort of a few major ways. And it's important to clarify right now, too, that I'm talking about civil mental health laws. So there's criminal called called forensic psychiatric system which, that deals with more serious crimes and and unfortunately the areas are getting blurred a bit but my book is almost entirely about the civil system and that's the one that's affecting most most people the, the larger segment so that's one of the ways that you can just when you're in a vulnerable situation where people are kind of in a way maybe they're looking out for you they might even come at this you know, they often are coming with very good intentions in a certain way, thinking that you may need some help. But unfortunately, that may then cross the line to saying, well, we think you should be making decisions that are different than the ones you are making, and we're going to become more aggressive about this. So it can happen almost anywhere, because essentially, anyone has the power to call 911 and say, I'm worried about so-and-so, will you check them out? And then the police will come around for a wellness check, often they don't feel equipped to make a real assessment, so they'll take you up to the hospital, assuming you're going to get good care. Well, you're now already on an involuntary hole at that point, and you can be subject to assessment. So that's one of the main ways that happens. In some of the institutions like long-term care, another factor can come into play because there are certain laws just around capacity and consent more generally, where a mental health diagnosis may or may not come into play. Because of course, someone can have dementia, which is technically a diagnosis, but often they may not give the person a mental health, a mental illness diagnosis, but rather just say they're losing their capacity to make decisions. And so some of these sorts of uh, um, you know, control mechanisms can kick in. I don't really address those in my book. I'm pretty much forced on the ones that are directly related to the use of the mental health laws. So I don't know if I'm answering your question. Uh, no, 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 I, I think you are. That's important. And, and I think too, you, you raise another issue because we're also having this conversation, thankfully, uh, in many spaces about how the police 
uh, don't have the qualifications to do mental health. And, and they're, they're too often used when someone is in crisis. But it sounds like what you're saying, uh, and we've seen some of the tragic outcomes of that when it comes to police violence. It sounds like what you're saying, even when the police don't just deliver one to a place to get care, then they're in a situation likely of, of not having consent. So, you know, it, it's, it's almost seems to be a no-win situation. Do we, is there any conversation at the national level? Do we need some type of national legislation uh, to protect people from this non-consent type of scenario? Yeah, I mean, the reality is we kind of do. The U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on mental health laws years ago, and the reality is just most jurisdictions are not really obeying what the Supreme Court said back in the 70s, essentially, and a, a number of other really much higher courts. You know, they do, they do recognize that this is an, an enormous infringement of, uh, upon civil liberties, and they prescribe the notion of dangerousness very strictly saying, yes, okay, this is not a case where someone's committed an actual act of violence, but there's a very real threat. You know, they have uttered vocal threats that I'm going to kill you or I'm going to kill myself. And, you know, so the Supreme Court laid it out, what the laws are supposed to be federally. And uh, unfortunately, jurisdictions have just whittled that down. Psychiatrists and judges don't really follow it. They're kind of like, oh, well, you know, danger could mean this. It could mean that. What's it really mean to you if somebody's smoking too much? Is that a danger? Gosh, it might be. You know, this is the actual kind of thing you'll hear at these hearings, right? They're, they're not barely talking about a real dangerous situation by, by the standards that most people would think. Uh, of danger. So yeah, I do think there needs to be a stronger federal initiative at the very least to say, hey, you've got to follow the laws, people. And that's just not happening right now because there, our, our society, as we're seeing, is very attached to reserving this kind of power. It's a power to control people who are not breaking laws, who are not criminals, but somehow we're seeing governments really like to have that power. And, then it, and they obviously don't want um, don't want to let it go. Um, well, this is this is very uh, enlightening, folks, and and I hope people will will check out the book. Your consent is not required. This is a very uh, obviously a very important conversation. And uh, as I said earlier, we've been looking at this here in New York, and it's raised people's uh, antennas. Um, but there is a rise. Um, in, as our guest tells us, in these psychiatric detentions, forced treatment, abusive guardianships, and we want to, is, is, there, is there any, are there any areas of the country before we go, Rob, where it's more prevalent than others? We don't really know because we don't have the data, but definitely in the major cities, right, we're seeing this issue around homelessness, right, becoming a major way to use these laws. Um, but um, from state to state, you do see um, when we're talking with these other groups, you know, I, I got to say, as far as I can see, it's, it's widespread. Yeah. There are a few jurisdictions that aren't as aggressive. So we could say that, you know, up to this point, there's some states that, for, for instance, and we haven't even talked about this, implemented the outpatient commitment laws where people are living in the community. They're considered safe to live in the community, but they're still being forcibly treated. And certain states have resisted implementing those laws because they've seen them as unduly aggressive. Uh, but then some states use them very, very aggressively. Yeah, and obviously, as you mentioned, I'm very concerned about what happens with, with young people uh, and students because a, a lot of our young people are are diagnosed too early and put in these forcible situations. And that's not good uh, either. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? 
outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Rob, joining us now is someone who can speak directly to this experience, correct? Yeah, that's right. Uh, Cindy Hodge is a uh, professional trainer at an organization called Wildflower, Wild, Wildflower Alliance. Um, she can tell you a bit about what that organization does, but she's also someone who's had experience in the psychiatric system and uh, at some point went in there voluntarily and then also had experiences where it was not uh, um, voluntary. And so she could talk about that uh, really well. She's a regular speaker on these issues. Cindy, how are you? Oh, very good. Uh, glad to be here and um, so glad that I'm not currently in an institution and I haven't been in one for, you know, uh, maybe a decade now, but a great part of my life was really uh, wrapped up in wanting somebody to fix me and wanting help and um, believing that there was something terribly wrong with me was my initial belief. And, and I can remember like going there and saying, you know, I want help. And they would say, don't worry, we just have to get you on the right cocktail. And I laughed at that because I thought, wow, I had been using drugs and alcohol to make my life seem at all livable. And now they were offering me these psychiatric medications saying that's the solution. And it didn't really work out for me. And uh, the amazing thing would happen, you know, I would show up and say, I want help. And they would say, you made a good decision. We're going to keep you safe. Now go in this room, take off all your clothes in front of a stranger, give us your phone, and we're going to lock you in a room and observe you. And guess what? There wasn't a mood elevator. You know, and if this is what help looks like, I'm not so interested. Uh, another amazing thing that, you know, I, I look at things sometimes, I try to turn them upside down, but the standard treatment I would get is they would lock me in isolation for days, three or four days, and they would call that treatment. But if I wanted to stay in my room for a day, what was that called? A symptom. And so these contradictions would really make me uh, curious. Um, one of the most jarring experiences for me was uh, getting tackled to the pavement and handcuffed because someone thought I might hurt myself. And to me, it just didn't make sense. If you're really worried about me, why are these police slamming me to the ground and handcuffing me? That they didn't feel like care. You know, it just didn't feel like that. And, uh, in fact, it just increased my sense of uh, powerlessness and, you know, really replicated some of the trauma I had experienced as a kid. You, and you, this is an institution you went into voluntarily? Well, so on different occasions, um, High Street and Holyoke was, I got picked up. I got picked up. That was not voluntary. You know, once you're in the system, sometimes people are watching out and they're very fear-based. And so they want to, you know, they react in ways of... Uh, you know, we want to prevent this from happening. And so they do these things proactively, but they don't necessarily feel helpful to somebody. To me, it would have felt helpful if people said, you know, how do we support you to create a life you want to live? 
that would have been a more helpful conversation. But within a system, I yes, I've walked in voluntarily and then had all my rights removed. Absolutely. And you it's know, important to uh, mention that that's not uncommon. This has become one of the more typical ways people end up involuntary is they go in seeking help and then they may disagree with the particular drug, say, I've tried that one, I don't like that one. And the doctor may just go, well, okay, we're going to make you involuntary, give it to you anyway. And just imagine the level of, uh, you know, most people get to pick who they sleep around at night, right? Most people get to pick if they want to quit smoking today or not. Most people get to pick what they want to eat. You know, uh, most people get to decide if they want to use a phone or their cell phone. And when you go inpatient, you lose all that right at once. It, it, I mean, it, 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 Rob and Cindy, I mean, it sounds like that criminalizes you. You're supposed to be there for help. And, I mean, that's what we do in America. We criminalize a lot of things. I think now people are just learning how not to criminalize drug dependency. You know, for a long time that you just straight up criminal, you know, it wasn't. Um, <laughs> so, uh, uh, so now you mentioned it, and you, you shared one scenario where, you know, you were, you were taking this cocktail, so to speak, that type of thing was forced upon you, Cindy. Yes. Let me give you an example of that. I was, uh, inpatient and I didn't want to take Haldol because it made me shake, uh, it made my face twitch, and it also made me gain a lot of weight. I really didn't want to take it. And, um, when, and I, just, I want to keep our audience up to, to, to speed on this. You said it's Halidol, is that what it's called? Halidol. It's marketed oh. as an antipsychotic. Got it, okay, okay. And, um, and it had those side effects. Yes, yes, they're well-known, well-documented. Uh, if you're on it too long, those side effects become permanent. So tell, tell us again, slurred speech, what else does it cause? Twitching, a lot of twitching and shaking, uh, facial tics. And at a certain point, uh, I was on so much of it, I would just spontaneously fall down. What is the argument given for giving someone a drug like that? How is that supposed to what is well, that so the, the theory is that you're going to give somebody an antipsychotic. It's called an antipsychotic, like it's an antidote, but it's not. <laughs> but the theory is, oh, it's going to make somebody stop hearing voices or having visions or having unusual beliefs. What it really does is just sedate somebody so much that they don't care that about anything. Um, like when I was on state services you know i outreach worker came to my house and said you're doing great and i said uh i have no life i sit on myself i watch tv drink coffee smoke cigarettes and she said yeah but you're not getting into trouble so that's that's why people prescribe those to sedate people keep them out of trouble and uh, they actually have very serious health consequences taking those drugs so anyways they were they wanted me to take this. I didn't want to. So they surrounded me and just walked closer and closer. And I knew that um, if I tried to push back or if I kept trying to evade, I would be accused of hitting them. So uh, eventually I just took it because I didn't want to end up in restraints. But obviously, it's something that blows my mind, Rob. I mean, you, you're dealing with people already having issues and then you put them on something. I mean, I'm, I'm troubled just hearing that. That'll make me feel better. That, that troubles me. Just the fact I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with, whatever that is. And I also am consciously aware. So you mentioned, you don't, you, you were still aware that you were being given something that for, to put it probably to understate it was sedating you, right? You were conscious that that was going on, right? Right. Right. And, um, and oh my gosh, you know, it doesn't build your self-esteem when you can no longer think or read or talk correctly because you're so heavily drugged. Um, and, and, and think about this. This is the law, informed consent, right? 
you know, people are supposed to tell you the impact of taking this treatment or that treatment or what all the options are. But when you're in a psychiatric unit, there, my experience anyways, and the people I support, there is no informed consent. It's take this or else. Yeah. Was, go ahead, Rob. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say it's really important to understand this is not unusual at all what Cindy is sharing with us now. This is extremely common, in fact, typical of what forced treatment involves. Right. Uh, it usually involves an antipsychotic drug, which has heavy tranquilizing effects. And it's very unpleasant for many people, particularly if they can't control the dose. Some people will say, okay, I do like the effect if they can collaborate with their psychiatrist and get to a dose that they're comfortable with. But a lot, when you're involuntary, you don't have that power. The psychiatrist is making all the decisions and these can be extremely debilitating drugs. And the list of side effects are really quite, uh, quite brutal and dangerous in a lot of cases. And so Cindy, there were, there were occasions where you said you didn't want to do that anymore, correct? And right. what, was, so, what was the response? So usually the response is, well, then we're going to increase it. That, that is one of the wait, 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 wait. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm trying to keep up. <laughs> I, th I think we had a bad connection. I think your, your phone broke up. You said you don't want to take it anymore. And I don't mean to laugh. It's not funny. And they said, well, we're going to increase it. Is that what I heard? Right. Exactly. And, uh, and so it turns into this power thing. And, uh, you know, there's a, at one point I was on Thorazine, right? And uh, because I kept saying, no, I don't want to take anything. And so they kept increasing it, trying to get me to be compliant. Okay. Now I want to, I want to be sure everybody's following now. Now you, we, you educate us about Haldol. What's Thorazine? What is that supposed to do? That was uh, when it first came out, it was the uh, pill form of a uh, lobotomy. That was its uh, slogan when, when it first came out. Y'all, forgive me. I'm sorry. They're looking at my facial expressions. I, I wasn't prepared. <laughs> Rob didn't tell me all. I'm one uh, 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 oral form of lobotomy. Wait a minute. I can't. Okay. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm I'm trying to process this. What? Yes. Oh. It's important. It's also a, uh, an antipsychotic. Thorazine is not really commonly used anymore. Haldol is a very old drug as well, though, and that's very commonly used still. And that's how they were in originally introduced back in the 1950s and 60s when they discovered this class of drugs. They were basically marketed as heavy-duty tranquilizing. Like tranquilizer itself was a marketing term. So they, were, they just knew what it was. This will knock somebody out. And you, you literally can use them to dock people up. And, and so they were, you know, referred to sometimes as, yeah, like a chemical lobotomy. It's great. Now they don't use that kind of terminology anymore, but they do use the term chemical restraint. And the Center for Medicare and Medicaid uses the term. So, so that's what these drugs are. Yeah. Okay, so, so let's go back. So you would say you would decline. And, and when you were doing that, were you within your rights? Was she within her rights, Rob, to do that? Can someone just say, I don't want to take this? Is, is that an option or? You can say that until such time as they say, well, now you're an involuntary patient. And then they start making the decisions. And what they will do is uh, the coercive nature of it is if you don't take this drug, you're not going to get any of the privileges on the unit. You won't be able to go for a walk. You won't be able to eat, you know, in the dining room. Um, you won't be able to watch TV. So legally there's a right, but there's no, like if I break the law, I have to go to court. When the hospital breaks the law, it doesn't have to go to court. There's like no accountability, but the, the threat will be, uh, we'll commit you for longer. So, you know, you try to take whatever you, you know, I've, I've made these decisions different ways. Sometimes I've said, okay, I'll take it. And then, uh, you know, so I can get out. Sometimes I've said, no, I won't take it. And actually gone through the commitment hearing. And fortunately for me, I've won, you know, that they couldn't prove that I was at risk to myself or anyone else or that my thinking was so disorganized that they had a right to keep me. But um, yeah, that's what happens. Yeah, and if I could comment on the legality of the situation. So 
what what happened here is you know you use the term criminalization. Well, this is actually in some ways legally worse. You have fewer due process rights than a typical cri suspected criminal would have in these situations. And the reason this has been tested at higher court levels frequently. And where the higher courts tend to land is, yes, yes, of course you should have all these rights. You should have the right to have visitors. You should have this right and that right. You know, they shouldn't be able to ban this. But then there, there's always a qualification. Unless uh, the psychiatrist decides that it's better for your mental health if you don't have these rights. So they ultimately leave all the discretionary power in the hands of the medical staff. And it is frequently, indeed, commonly used against patients like Cindy just described there to control them in environments say, sure, you can refuse these medications, but if you do, this is what we're going to do. We're going to block this. We're going to block that. And suddenly the pressure starts bearing down. That's a good point. It's worse than criminalization because as I was listening to that, I mean, where's the hearing to determine whether or not you should be forcibly or put on this medication? Where's the hearing to revoke or establish your rights to say no to, to that type of thing. Now, I want to be clear too, Cindy, um, you're telling us about your experiences in the past. I'm wondering what Cindy's describing today, because you mentioned these, some of these drugs aren't as new as others now, but are the experiences the same? In other words, what Cindy's describing, are people still dealing with that today? Right now, Rob, in the same scenario? Yes, absolutely. There's pro you probably cannot find a psychiatric hospital or a psychiatric ward in a general hospital where this is not absolutely routine every day. Mm -hmm. And then, Cindy, you, you uh, Rob did share with me that, you know, prior even to all of this in, in your early life, you were a victim of abuse. How is it not abusive to make me take something I don't want to take and then withhold socialization from me for not taking? So you, you, you're, you're trying to be helped having been a victim of an abusive situation and then you go walk right, you go someplace that's supposed to be helping you and they start abusing you. And, and, right. and I'm not exaggerating, right? That's what they, no. abuse is abuse, isn't it? Wait, and they actually, the things they said was sound so much the same as the things I was told where I was being abused. Like, cooperate, or you're going to make it worse on yourself. Uh, we're doing this for your own good. Uh, you brought this upon yourself. You know, I would hear that in my childhood experiences, and then I heard the same words, you know, when I sought help. You know, blaming the victim. And, and part of my healing really was to realize that there wasn't something terribly wrong with me, but there was something terribly wrong with what happened to me. Right. I, I want everybody to hear that. Because Cindy just gave us all a bit of therapy. I just want to pause for a minute. Because most of us get that confused. Even those of us who think we're okay and we've got it all figured out and we don't suffer from any psychological trauma. Some of us are too sophisticated. Sometimes we think we don't need any help. Cindy, you said some very, very powerful, Cindy. Um, you said that, you know, it's, it's not about you. There's not something wrong with you. There's something wrong with what happened to you. And I'll be honest, I've had to remind myself of that at, at different points in my life. So even in this conversation about this story and this book, that's that's a nugget of therapy that someone who's been victimized by the therapy system is giving us. And I hope we all can understand that. We should carry that around with us. We there's nothing wrong with us. There's there are things wrong with the traumas we have had to endure. All right. So I just want right. to pause and put that out there. And we adapt. Right. I adapted yeah. to that horrible environment. I did the best with my little kid brain to try to figure out how to make it through. And uh, as an adult, you know, if I get the right support, I can say, do those adaptations still work for me? You know, because they might've kept me alive then, but they're, they're kind of wrecking me now. So tell us please how you got out of that system or that cycle that the system was putting on you? First, I had to find out that it was possible. So within the mental health 
world with the diagnosis I was given, I was told I'd never be able to work. I should be grateful. You know, when I'm not in an institution, I'll always be on, you know, psych drugs. Um, and that I should accept and be grateful for a very limited life, which sounded a lot of, like my childhood. You should be grateful you have it this good. Uh, but anyways, what happened was um, I got to meet people at the Wildflower Alliance, and they kind of challenged that. And I got to meet people who were given the same diagnosis as me, but they were living their lives. They were creating lives they wanted to live. Now, again, what is, tell us what the Wildflower, for those who don't know, the Wildflower Alliance. and what... It's an organization, it's a community of people who have all gone through struggles, and, and people get to define those however they want, right? Whether it's grief, loss, psychiatric, oppression, incarceration, homelessness. And it's just people coming together to support each other. I've been through hard times. You've been through hard times. How do we help each other out? Like uh, one of my favorite groups in the hospital was the smoking room because there was no staff and it was just a bunch of people saying, wow, we are in this mess. How do we support each other? And so the Wildflower Alliance uh, has community spaces and we do trainings and actually at this point all over the world. But that, that was the beginning when people started pointing out not what was wrong with me, but what my strengths were. Like I can actually remember when I started talking there, I told them how screwed up I was and people said, hey, you've been through a lot. You must have some strengths because you're still on the planet. And I was like, whoa, whoa, that's a really different way to look at myself. And it was, it was a blessing that you heard that. Rob, we haven't talked about this much, but as, as I'm hearing Cindy, I mean, you, you have the institutions and their policies or unpolicies, but just like in the criminal justice system, part of the problem also, isn't it, uh, the staff, you know, and, and when you don't have people properly trained, who themselves should really not be in positions where they have their own psychological need to exert or abuse their own power and authority, right? So you got, you got the institution with its foolishness, but then you run up against the wrong personality. You know, we, we know this happens. Folks just get off. They don't have any power elsewhere. And which again is his own faculty. I don't have power elsewhere. So I'm gonna exert power over 70 and other patients like her. That's another uh, 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 cog in this wheel, isn't it? Yeah, like we see two things going on. People who, who might have these abusive tendencies can readily see, wow, look at all the power they will give me if I'm a medical staff person in one of these hospitals or a security guard. So it can draw those personalities, but also just having that extraordinary power, which they have, can kind of corrupt the personality over time, anyone with that amount of power over other humans, it, it's hard not to, you know, be basically be abusive, right? And and so, and we do see the evidence of this, right? So there, there's all sorts of lawsuits in process even right now around the country at these institutions when systemic investigations are done and they find that, yeah, that, that, that there are these kinds of um, very dangerous personalities often in positions of power. Um, and yeah, and that's built into the way the system is constructed. Once we make a law that disempowers one group so much and empowers another so much, it's bound to create trouble. And, and just like everywhere else, and this may be, I think I can say it in this grouping, you know, systematic racism appears, you know, in how people get diagnosed. Who gets the most heavily drugged? Who gets restrained the most? You know, and when I, when we started talking, I was talking about fear, right? And so if I'm a person who, who I fear people who look like that, they're going to be subject to way more control than, than, than an 18 year old attractive young little white woman. You know, it's just, I've seen that play out. I've actually seen that play out on a floor where uh, this young woman actually hit a staff member and uh, broke their nose and everybody said, oh, the poor girl, she must have trauma. You know, and then I saw other people who looked different who would get restrained and they didn't hit anybody. You know, it was in the eye of the beholder. 
And there, there is a lot of research around that, how that plays out. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's horrible. Um, but I could also imagine, I have to ask you this, we talk about racism, but I imagine there's some sexism too, because women are viewed differently. Aren't they? What, what happens to the, to the young woman or the older woman that's not attractive? You know, you know this, when you uh, take a woman who is uh, raped, sexually abused, and you, you know, you put her in a restraint on a bed, you know, I can't think of a more harmful thing to do to somebody than that. You are, you are replicating her trauma in the name of health. That is just like, it blows my mind that that happens, that that's acceptable. And it's not only happening, it happens a lot. So there's actually a lawsuit in process um, right now in, in another state. I don't want to go into detail because it's so brutal, but essentially they were videotaping the patients upon admission. They had numbers of young women coming in there who were victims of childhood abuse and sexual abuse in their lives. That's why they kind of were at, in the psychiatric system. And they were be forcibly stripped, threatened, um, and videotaped the entire time, you know, and now there's a lawsuit about it, but that's just at that one, like a few hospitals in one state. And this is actually totally common. Yeah, th this is, th these are uh, difficult stories to hear, difficult processes to hear about. Um, Cindy, you're doing well now? I, 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 my life is full of joy. Oh, my uh, my my uh, trauma and tragedies have been transformed because uh, now they're my gift to share with people. I get great spaces for myself and other people to heal and and to let people know they're not alone and uh, they're not crazy. They just need to heal. And and I and I witnessed that just in hearing you speak and and tell your story. You are. Um, doing a great service and, and carrying, uh, carrying our ministry. I was saying to a, uh, someone just last night, you know, minister is actually a verb, Rob. It means to serve. That's all it means. And so some of us wear collars, but others of us minister in so many other ways. And obviously, um, uh, Cindy, you were doing that. And, and we're thankful for you coming forward and sharing your story. Uh, we need a movement, don't we, folks? to do something about this. I, this is what it sounds like to me. Am I wrong? There is, there, there's, there is a movement, there's been a movement, but it's just not as well-funded as uh, some of those other uh, materialistic movements out there. We're not as well-funded as the pharmaceutical companies. One very important development is that the World Health Organization and the United Nations have started to campaign to abolish forced psychiatric treatment. And both the United States and Canada are repeatedly getting reprimanded now for not beginning to reduce the practice. But that has been a nice catalyst to bring groups together, recognizing that this kind of psychiatric oppression that we're talking about is another form of oppression. And, you know, and that it's affecting people who are also victims of other kinds of, of marginalization and oppression in our society. And so hopefully this movement will grow, will expand this growing recognition that the carceral system in the United States um, includes psychiatric incarceration and people need to collaborate more on, on ending these systems and finding alternatives. Yeah, yeah. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, Visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. 
Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. We thank you both folks again. Um, um, the, the book is Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. Folks, I said a movement. Obviously, there is a movement. But I guess what I mean to say, folk like you and me need to be in the movement. Uh, folks, those of us who heretofore have not been unaware of this and, and just aren't necessarily interested, but, but Rob talked about the, the carceral system. This is, is a part of that. All right. So when we talk about the carceral system, we need to be sure that's included. In fact, I, I've got another guest joining me a bit later, um, uh, to talk about, you know, demands that they're making of the white house this week of the State of the Union around carceral system reform. And I'm going to ask them, are you all including what Rob and Cindy and I have been talking about? I'm going to kind of, I'm going to, I'm going to advocate for that. And uh, wherever there's a movement, I want to be included. I want to inspire others to be included. Before we go, Cindy, if you don't mind, before we got started, folks, Cindy, Cindy's name is Cindy Hedge. And I asked her about her name. Please share with all your name is very special. I want people to hear what you told me. So my uh, great grandfather was uh, coming to the United States from the Middle East, and he had a friend named Cahill Gibran. And Cahill said, "Don't try to bring your name to the U.S. They're, they're just going to ruin it. But you're the first of your family to come. This is your religious pilgrimage. You are the Hajj, and that's where that name came from." And so when I asked Cindy about her name and how to pronounce it, she said... You know Malcolm X? That's right. That's what she said. <laughs> you know in the movie they say, you had me at hello. Cindy had me at Malcolm X when she said that. So uh, uh, what a wonderful story. And, and further proof, you know, that, you know, it's unfortunate your experience, but even your ability to share that story shows um, your value and your blessing unto the rest of us. No one is, is less than a blessing in this world and everybody should be treated that way. Um, so we appreciate you both. Next time, no, I'm, I'm, next time I miss a Rob, though, Cindy, I'm gonna be sure I, we talk before we do it because I, he, y'all kinda called me a little off guard. I mean, I knew you, what you're, I read about it, but then y'all hit me with some stuff. I just wasn't we quite, shocking, prepared, huh? wasn't quite prepared for it. So next time I got to do a little brief with Rob so I'm not caught off guard by anything. Uh, and, and he already hinted about this case. I can only imagine what details are there. But folks, uh, get the book, read the book, share the book. Let's, let's get involved in the movement Cindy and Rob are a part of as well. And, and the first act I'm gonna take, when I talk to this, this um, decarceral group this afternoon, um, I'm gonna ask them, is this included in the process? And I, I pray that it is. Your consent is not required the rise in psychiatric detentions, forced treatment and abuse of guardianships. And Cindy's folk, Cindy folks is with the Wildflower Alliance, Wildflower Alliance. Folks, we invite you to see what support you can give them, wildfloweralliance.org. And I'm going to go on too and see what you all up to and see ways we can be supportive. But uh, God bless you, Cindy. And to all those who would have treated you in the way they treated you, look at you now. And look what you're doing for thousands of people just by talking to us and by interacting with people at the Alliance. It says in scripture, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And so you have a table before you that all of us can share them, okay? Thank you so much. And I have to say, I'm so grateful. I have a loving higher power. It makes all the difference in my life. Clearly you do. Yeah. Thanks, Cindy, so much today, too, for coming on. And, you know, and she's representing in some way many voices like her that are included in my book. You know, the, the, the survivor voice is so important. I want to uplift it as well and, and thank so many people who are anonymously or not anonymously um, bringing out their own names. Whichever way they do it, they feel comfortable speaking about these issues. It's so important, so valuable. Your consent is not required. The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment and Abusive Guardianships by Rob Wipon. I know you don't just write to be writing. 
I just don't do a talk show to be doing a talk show. Hopefully these things enlighten people, mobilize people, make us aware so we can do something about it. Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her or himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are clear, it has been made plain.